Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here as always with my friend, colleague, and co-host, soon to depart the United States for uh, greener pastures up north, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. How are you, Tim? Hello, Brian. Um I hope yes. I didn't. I hope I didn't jinx it, by the way. Yeah, I, I hope you didn't jinx think... it, but but I I doubt that you did, and and it can't come too soon. I actually was planning to record this from the office for the first time in a while, and tried to drive into the office, but the protests over the Cuban crackdown actually had shut that entire area down. So yeah. peaceful protests in the United States. We'll talk some more about the protests in Cuba on the same yeah. issue later exactly. on in the episode. Exactly. Exactly. Um, timely. Timely as always, and the next time around, hopefully Tim will be commenting on that from uh, from parts parts up north. If all I'm goes guessing there will not be a lot of protests that will keep me from getting to my destination in no. Canada. That would no, be I'm guessing guess. that is the uh, that is the truth. They'll block your way to hot yoga, perhaps, but um, not not anything Hope, else. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Anyway, thank you to everyone for joining us again. Uh, on the latest episode of Embargo, thank you to our guests the last time around, Mr. Richard Mojica, Mr. Nate Langford, um, really appreciate their time. Appreciate all the um, positive feedback we got from everybody uh, that suggests that you like uh, Ricky and Nate better than you like me and Tim. Our feelings aren't hurt. They are lovely, intelligent um, gentlemen. So we're always happy to have them back on. But uh, no, seriously, thank you to everybody who responded to the last episode, which I think was really good. And, and in some ways kind of sets up a couple of things we're going to talk about today. Um, uh, on this episode, which I think we have, we have resolved is going to, we always say this, but we think is going to be a relatively compact, brisk episode. We have four topics, one, only one lightning round topic today. Um, and then we are probably only going to give you one episode in August, given vacation schedules, travel schedules, et cetera. So this'll be, um, this'll be the last, uh, regular one in a while in all likelihood, but um, so before we get to that, of course, the normal, I'll just dispense with the normal um, preliminary matters. Uh, we're not giving legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information, any views and opinions that you dislike, abhor, uh, or generally don't agree with are mine and Tim's alone, nobody else's. So blame us. Uh, if you do enjoy the pod, please subscribe. Please give us a rating, um, hopefully a five-star rating. Please spread the word. You can find us anywhere you get your pod contact. Um, and with that, let me just run down quickly what we're going to cover today. So um, we have, as I said, four topics. Number one is actually not Cuba, it is Hong Kong, uh, and specifically the Hong Kong Business Advisory that came out just a few days after we uh, recorded the last episode. So we're going to cover that. Then we're going to get to Cuba. We're going to talk about what's happening literally on the streets of Cuba and in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. government's response to that and what we expect going forward. Uh, then we're going to pivot to two of our favorite Topics, uh, Nord Stream 2 and JCPOA 2.0, and that'll be our program for today. And then in the lightning round, we're going to do a little bit of a somewhat of an amorphous topic. But given what we talked about the last time around with Richard and Nate about CBP enforcement, uh, and given that we're now six months in to the Biden administration, and there were actually a handful of enforcement actions that came out of OFAC and DOJ last week. Or, or significant developments in some enforcement actions out of OFAC and DOJ. We thought we would kind of check in on enforcement generally, trends, you know, sort of anecdotally that perhaps we've been noticing, uh, just some early thoughts uh, to share with everybody on that. And then that'll be our program for today. So before we get started, Tim, any final words, any initial thoughts? Kick no, us off. I think, I think you've summed it up nicely, Brian. Okay. So with that, let's uh, get right into it. So topic number one, as I said, the Hong Kong Business Advisory, which was uh, issued, it was a joint advisory that was obviously, we spent a lot of time on the last episode talking about the Xinjiang Advisory. Uh, This one came out a few days later. It was a joint advisory issued by State, Treasury, Commerce, and Homeland Security on July 16th. And uh, there are a few kind of interesting things about the advisory that we want to highlight. Um, I'll highlight quickly, and then I'll, I'll sort of throw to Tim for some for his thoughts. So, you know, the title of this is "Risks and Considerations for Businesses Operating in Hong Kong," and I think it is no, it is clearly no accident that this came out 
uh, one year uh, since the uh, the passage and the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong. And in fact, there was a um, there was a statement that was put out by Secretary Blinken on the on the same day that this was released, uh, noting and commemorating the the one year um, the sort of one year anniversary of the national security law. So this is in some ways kind of a well-timed kind of marketing slash some might some more cynical might call it propaganda effort by the the U.S. to sort of use that I think and um, refocus some attention perhaps on what's happening in Hong Kong and uh, also raise perhaps general awareness uh, on a few different issues that are all kind of coming together uh, in connection with doing business in Hong Kong at the moment for foreign foreign companies. I should say that notably the the trade compliance aspects of this there there are literally were sort of four things that are listed in this um, advisory uh, and it deals more um, it it sort of trade compliance is kind of at the bottom of the list in in some ways there were sort of four things that are mentioned um, and you know they're talking about the the risk of arrest for the national security law data under uh, data privacy considerations, which, um, as we know, are b a big concern in China and now, uh, by extension, in Hong Kong, uh, transparency and access to information, and, and then it's sort of worrying about sort of U.S. authorities in, uh, relating to sanctions and other trade-related uh, restrictions, including uh, the change that uh, BIS affected late last year to treat Hong Kong as uh, to take away its separate destination under the EAR and essentially treat it just like China is treated. So my, and, and I would note also that the final two pages of the advisory basically just document all of the laws that China has put in place to potentially uh, deter those in Hong Kong from complying with U.S. Uh, sanctions and uh, export control laws uh, including the, of course, the anti-sanctions law that just uh, got passed recently and a few other of the Chinese laws that are now in the books that are clearly, I think, uh, making everyone who does business in the, in, in the country very concerned about what the long-term prospects are there. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, and this, this sort of builds on what we've talked about before, in terms of the actual sanctions and export control risk at the moment for Hong Kong, you know, it's not that much has changed. There have been a series and a smattering of designations that have happened over the last year. Uh, there have been, there are a number of authorities that are out there that could uh, be the basis for additional designations that we've talked about, you know, quite extensively over the last year. Um, you know, the there are more entity listings. There is the change to the AR. Uh, that we mentioned in terms of the separate country status. Um, and, but, you know, as we talked about not that long ago, maybe the last month or two, um, the most recent report that the State Department sent to Congress noted that there were no foreign financial institutions that have been found to be engaged in significant transactions with those that are subject to, um, that are engaging in sort of these anti-democratic human rights abuses in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and, you know, unless or until that domino falls and the financial uh, world, you know, has a has a cautionary uh, tale or note to look to here, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to see how from that perspective things are going to change. Now, I think there's, you know, I'm sure the U.S. government said there's value in again packaging all this up, sending it out as a bit of a marketing effort. You know, one year anniversary. Let's remind everybody things are. Things are troublesome in Hong Kong right now and could be getting worse. And if you stay committed there long term, uh, whether it's to operate there, to do business there, to have headcount there, whatever the case may be, as a foreign company, you could face, you could find yourself in a very difficult situation. You could uh, wake up one day, six months from now, a year from now or more, and have either regulatory or legal problems on your hand. You could find that you're, you know, subject to a, a data breach, uh, you could have other problems. Uh, you could find yourself in, in trouble with OFAC or BIS. So at the end of the day, 
I don't want to say there's not a lot of there there, but this is in some ways just kind of a, you know, a repackaging as these advisories always tend to be. This is, a you know, kind of an opportunistic repackaging of lots of different considerations in one place with a bow on top to sort of remind everybody who perhaps has not spent a lot of time thinking about this that they should be worrying about this. And people who are worrying about this, as we know from having discussions with folks who do have these things front of mind, they're worrying about it a lot and they're already doing something about this. And this is probably not going to change that at all. But as a, as sort of a friendly reminder to everybody uh, that this is, you know, uh, I think the primary value that I would, that I would see behind this. And, and with that, I will toss it to Tim to see what his thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are along the same lines. I mean, this is an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that, you know, in 1997, when the British handed uh, Hong Kong back to the Chinese, the 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 catchphrase was two systems, one country. That there was going to be a Hong Kong where you had a you know a relatively independent judiciary. It was somewhat Western facing, but you still had all the benefits of really being in the China business community. And Hong Kong prospered for many years because of that, because I think companies took um, comfort in the idea that some of the data privacy risks and some of the other risks of doing business in China and, and, and some of the potential human rights concerns in doing business in China weren't there in Hong Kong. And I think what this advisory does is really acknowledge what was really starting to come into play a year ago, which was the idea that it's now one system, one country. Hong Kong is no different than Beijing or Shanghai from a business perspective. And in fact, in many ways, it's more dangerous now from a business perspective because you have a sanctions risk that in some ways you don't have in Shanghai or Beijing. And so I think it acknowledges that Hong Kong is no longer kind of a separate business area that you can kind of take comfort in the fact that it's a little bit different from China, although it's in many ways part of China. Um, but but I, I will say that it, it does, you know, hasten what I see is the trend already of of businesses to turn away from from Hong Kong to to other places where they think they might be able to get the same sorts of benefits of doing business in the the Far East, um, but kind of outside of China's at least direct umbrella. And so I think this will, you know, is just another signal that the U.S. is encouraging kind of not divestment from China, but encouraging U.S. companies for sure and Western companies to think about other areas besides Hong Kong now because the Hong Kong that existed 10 years ago really doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And in that way, I think that's a good point. And in that way, it's it's of a piece with the decoupling conversation that we had last time with Richard and Nate. And it is really all part of the same calculus for the U.S. is that, you know, underscoring this point, emphasizing this point to the global business community is all part of, again, the U.S. effort to obviously get companies based in the U.S. to serve to decouple from China, now Hong Kong. But even more broadly, if, if there's any way to use that sort of softer persuasion on non-U.S. companies, perhaps, or companies that don't have uh, the deep ties to the U.S. Uh, to flag all of the risks of continuing on there without any change in behavior, change in strategy, uh, change in the risk calculus is, uh, you know, really what seems to be going on here. That that's that's the uh, that's the big that's the big takeaway from this. And and you know, again, in some ways this is all old news because we've talked about this, uh, you know, extensively. But uh, it, it's always interesting when when um, you know the the U.S. government sees the the need or the benefit of putting together uh, you know, a paper like this, an advisory like this to get it out, because that does, it does in some ways, you know, try essentially elevate the message to, to some degree. And I think that's, that's what they're going for here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's almost a nice segue into the next segment, unless you have more on Hong Kong, Brian. No, let's, let's turn to, let's turn it, to Cuba. It's just a, it's just a, you know, it, it, we talked about this a couple podcasts ago that the Biden administration ha has made a point of, um, really trying to prioritize human rights 
um, as part of its foreign policy agenda. And at the end of the day, the Hong Kong sanctions are about human rights, or at least what the U.S. perceives as intrusions on human rights in Hong Kong. So, so intrusions on the independent judiciary, intrusions on the right of peaceful protest. Um, last Thursday, the U.S. government, the Treasury Department, imposed sanctions. They put the Cuba's defense minister and a special forces unit of the Interior Ministry in Cuba on the global Magnitsky, or on the SDN list under the global Magnitsky program, which is at the at bottom a, a human rights program um, that allows OFAC to sanction various government actors or in, foreign individuals uh, for what the U.S. perceives as human rights violations. And I think um, before you know, we talk about kind of what that means from a um, from a just a pure kind of technical sanctions perspective. I think it's important to put it into context. Um, you know, the the protests, as I mentioned at the outset, um, some support. I, I I believe, at least from what I could tell from my car as I was sitting in traffic, I believe that the protesters today were supporting the protest that has been going on in Cuba for for most of the last six months, um, as as most listeners to the podcast know, uh, you know that there have been a series of peaceful protests in Cuba. Uh, they apparently arose starting in November of 2020 when the Cuban government cracked down on the San, uh, Isid the San Isidro movement, which is a civil society group that is um, basically opposed to restrictions on artistic impression. So I, I, this, this movement apparently started with a crackdown on the artists, uh, like a lot of movements start. I mean, the poets and the artists are often um, what governments fear most because they can inspire people uh, to to see things that they might not otherwise have seen, and you know, the, in this after the crackdown, apparently a, a well-known group of Cuban hip hop artists re released a song called "Patria y Vida," um, you know, country and life, critical of the government, and that became an instant hit and basically rallied um, the people to start kind of rising up against the the Cuban government for for you know to protest uh, you know massive repressions of human rights and slow progress on COVID uh, in terms of vaccinations, food shortages, blackouts. I mean, it, it, the, the, the situation is pretty dire in Cuba, as I understand it. And so this was, uh, this was um, you know, the backdrop um, behind which the government, uh, as many, you know, many authoritarian governments around the world uh, use crackdowns on peaceful protests, like in Hong Kong, like in Havana, you know, for a little while, that sort of thing happened here when we had the government march out into a peaceful protest and do a photo opportunity in the middle of a church. But usually in the United States, that doesn't happen. So that was the backdrop behind the behind the, the sanctions of the defense minister and uh, and the, the, the interior legion in, in Cuba. I, I think what is important about it, because I, I was reading the questioning with the State Department, um, about this, and you know, the the questioning was some, somewhat along the lines of, well, why why does this even matter? I mean, Cuba is under embargo. The entire government um, is basically, you know, on a do not deal list, and so why does this matter? And I think the response was kind of telling. I mean, I think it matters for two reasons. The first is because it's under the Global Magnitsky program, so it's a little different type of sanction. And I think it's one where uh, the thinking of the government is that the, the world community will view this as different. And the reason it will view, because the, the world community really does not has not warmed to the Cuba sanctions program in the 60 years it's been around. Um, it's one of the most unilateral programs, really, the, the rest of the world not only does not honor the Cuba embargo, but many of our allies have laws that prohibit their own citizens from complying with the Cuban embargo. But I think using the global Magnitsky and emphasizing human rights violations is designed to both kind of, in the eyes of the world, make these sanctions a little bit different. And as a legal matter, they are a little bit different. They come under a different executive order. They actually have provisions that will, um, that are in some sense, secondary sanctions, because um, materially assisting anybody who is the subject of these sanctions uh, is is itself sanctionable. And although the the State Department response to why they did this was somewhat terse, that seemed to be what they're getting at. They said, "Well, we're not going to talk about where these various people have assets because that would tip them off." But I think that 
my guess is that they realize that the sanctioned parties have assets outside of Cuba that potentially could be reached if they're in allied countries, um, or at least they will create the threat for those allied countries that there could be some sort of um, some sort of uh, you know, material support or financial support sanction if you were to continue to deal with these individuals and with these groups. Um, and because it's Global Magnitsky, it's not subject to these same blocking laws that the other sanctions are, or at least arguably not subject to them. And so it's one that the rest of the world community could honor without generally honoring the Cuba embargo. So I think that that might be the beginning of something in Cuba with sanctions policy that the U.S. may be taking on to try and kind of carve this out of the general Cuba embargo, which the world really doesn't honor and say, well, this is different. This is support for the protesters. This is a human rights issue. It's not just kind of a U.S., you know, we want a different government in Cuba type issue. We're just supporting the protesters and you should you need to support these sanctions or else, you know, you'll be acting against the protesters. So I, I thought it was interesting. It's, they also said it's the beginning. I mean, there there's a number of measures in place that uh, the administration is considering that is really going to be part of support for the protesters. And this is just one. But but I, when I first thought it, I thought kind of this is just purely symbolic. But as I've thought about it more, I actually think there is a much bigger purpose to it. Yeah, I think it's also that brings up another good point, which is we've talked a lot about what the Biden administration wants to do with Cuba and whether he would whether they would revert back to kind of Obama era Cuba policy and, or keep a hard line uh, and, and sort of what the what the path was with Cuba. And it was a little unclear. We, we talked a lot about the political risks of just sort of lightening uh, restrictions on Cuba with the with the regime there still firmly in power and with the the blowback that we know that that could create here in, in the U S especially in, in a place like Florida. And I think now with something like this, and there were no real signals for, you know, once, once Biden took office that that was going to happen, we were speculating a little bit that that was perhaps going to happen, but most of the, most of the rhetoric and most of the uh, behavior has suggested that he was going to maintain a fairly, Hardline. I think now there's really no choice. I think as long as the regime is going to do things like this, that there is no choice. And I think Tim's right that using Glomag as the sort of the, you know, the the hammer to go after the folks that are behind this most directly is actually uh, kind of a nice uh, tactical you know, advantage for the U S because it does bring in. And, and as Tim said, I think have the benefit of being able to, um, stand on a pure kind of human rights basis for, uh, for, for cracking down on these individuals and entities, which is something that's very hard to, uh, you know, uh, turn your nose up at even for countries that have not been supportive of the Cuban embargo. And so, I do think there's a lot of uh, appeal to that. And perhaps if there was ever going to be some kind of uh, multilateral support for kind of forcing further action in Cuba to perhaps finally get regime change, you know, free elections, you know, a real turning of the page there, uh, perhaps something like this could, could be it. Now, we've seen some version of this in many different countries around the world uh, you know, in the last several years and it hasn't exactly, uh, kind of coalesced to that, uh, yet, but it's hard to say, it's hard to say. I mean, Cuba is a bit of a special case just given the history there and given the sort of nature of the countries that are sort of backing Cuba, uh, and, and those that are perhaps now falling back, maybe in closer alignment with the U S on how they're doing, uh, foreign, on how they're conducting foreign policy in light of the new, administration. So I think to me, that's kind of the biggest thing that's, that'll be interesting to see is sort of what is this, um, what is the signal for, for the next chapter here? I would say as a, as a smaller kind of more technical matter, there was a lot of chatter. I think this came straight from the white house and I saw it in a few other places as well. There has been an ongoing debate about what to do in terms of allowing, uh, or perhaps loosening restrictions on sending remittances to Cuba um, from, from the U S and there's been a fear and there has been a history of the regime essentially intercepting those or taking a cut of those and enriching themselves. But I think there is certainly now some momentum or a lot of discussion about perhaps a smarter way or a better way to 
allow that to be able to essentially help finance the resistance almost in some ways, um, or not even the resistance, but even just, as Tim said, you know, the situation there, conditions there by all accounts are quite dire at the moment, especially with COVID raging. Um, and so for humanitarian reasons and also for uh, perhaps other pro-democracy reasons, there would be good reason to find a way to do this. And I think that would be the next thing I would keep an eye on is, is what is the U.S. and what is OFAC going to do and, and the state going to do about the remittance issue, which I think is a big is a big is a big problem and is is not an easy one to solve necessarily, but is one that I think uh, a lot of folks are trying to wrestle with right now. So that's that's sort of the last thing I would say on that. Yeah, on the sanctions issue, I think remittance is re- remittance reform. I think is might be what they would call it is coming. Um, I like there, that. I like there's that. a there is a commission uh, that the president put put together that just got started last week that is going to look at remittances and try and figure out a way to make sure that the remittances really get to the Cuban people and don't get to the Cuban government, if that's possible, and try and change U.S. remittance law, because there is a you know an exception to the embargo that allows, that, that allows for remittances under certain circumstances to try and change those rules to make them, you know, better able to get the money into the hands of the people that the U.S. wants to go into. I think the other thing to look at, two other things to look at, one is um, they're looking at reforming um, the, the embargo or changing the embargo to allow more uh, wider access and to a, to a better internet in Cuba, if that's possible. So I think that that's the other thing from a sanctions perspective to look for is whether or not there's going to be changes to some of the general license the licenses that involve telecommunications, which may also be coming. Um, the final thing to look for, which really isn't sanctions related, is more kind of um, you know implementing human rights policy related. Is that they're they're going to try and uh, read rebuild back the the US embassy in Cuba so that it can actually serve as a place where you know the, the administration can keep its finger on, on the pulse of what's happening on the ground but also um you know provide some limited support uh for human rights on the ground in Cuba right staff it up and yeah. uh yeah there had been a skeleton crew down there for the last few years but that's by all accounts that's what's going to happen so anyway that's it's this is a fascinating one we will be keeping it and obviously quite consequential uh, given the history, the long history with the U.S. and Cuba. And so we will keep a close watch on this and I'm sure we'll be coming back to it before too long. Let us pivot now to topics three and four, which I think will both be brief, uh, These, although they are two of our favorites. So uh, given that we have already done for topic three, given that we have already done a podcast recently t- titled Waving the White Flag with respect to Nord Stream 2, I think we're on record as <laughs> having expected something like this to happen. We, we definitely um, called and, that. Yeah. So it is official now that the U.S. has has uh, agreed, has announced uh, last week in, in the mix. There's a there's a package of announcements, but relating to climate change and a number of other initiatives that the U.S. and Germany were are, are going to be working on together or committed to work on together uh, in terms of in particular supporting Ukraine um, which is obviously a, a centerpiece of the Nord Stream 2 uh, kerfuffle, but at, the U.S. has essentially admitted the pipeline is going to be finished, and there's no, and there's nothing we can do about it. So we are we are going to um, you know we're not happy about that. We we are still um, you know very concerned about the mischief that Russia Russia may get up to here in terms of weaponizing its uh, you know. Uh, control over the energy energy supply but uh we are we have listened to our friends from germany and we are going to essentially stand down uh with respect to Nord Stream 2 now fascinating for anybody who hasn't seen this there was a briefing that was done and and the state department uh as anonymous state department official who was doing an on the record briefing for a number of media folks basically went through and the talking points were essentially Again, this is something we have dis- we have discussed almost exactly to the point, but they basically pointed out, despite the, despite multiple statutory authorizations that were in place for the prior administration, they chose to do nothing. They literally did nothing with respect to Nord Stream Two right. until the final day of the administration when they when they sanctioned one vessel and one entity, and that was it. Right. And since we've come into office, we actually sanctioned 19 entities and vessels, and we have done 
uh, our part to try to hold accountable the people that are responsible for building the pipeline. However, we can't ignore reality, which is this pipeline is going to get finished. And given that and given our close ties and our important relationship with Germany, we're, we're essentially going to um, admit defeat and we're going to work with Germany to secure, hopefully, uh, you know, the future energy supply and, and sovereignty of Ukraine vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. And also we have talked to Poland and other sort of regional um, allies that are, you know, hugely affected by this to ensure that they are on board with all of this. And this is how we're going to proceed. Now, I would just say very quickly as a last comment, um, the, uh, the sanctions are not going away. They haven't been lifted. I mean, we talked about this a few episodes ago with, um, with the sanctions that did come into place, obviously with the, um, the general licenses that are in place there, there's a lot you can still do. There's very little that was really truly restricted unless for you, you know, us persons were trying to deal directly, uh, relating to the pipeline project, but otherwise these parties were, you know, business was still, uh, it was still possible to do a lot of business with, um, Marine Rescue Service and some of the other and the some of the other entities that were hit by the the PISA sanctions, but um, it it is uh, at the end of the day this is sort of the I think the 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 official now death rattle for Nord Stream two um, as a as an enforcement priority for the U.S. government, uh, despite again the multiple the multiple uh, authorities that are on the books that. As the State Department rightly pointed out, the Trump administration chose not to actually exercise when they had the ability to do so. So um, I'll toss it to Tim for 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 some final thoughts, since this is one of his favorite topics. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there was that, that, you know, there was obviously a lot of uh, political cover at play uh, during that State Department briefing. Uh, you know, we 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 pl we're we're not backing down. We're just playing the hand that we were dealt. And we just right. made the call that. Uh, that as a practical matter, we can't stop this pipeline. So, so basically what we ought to do is get the best deal we can from Germany um, because we can either, you know, get cross, continue to be really crosswise with the Germans on this um, and still not stop the pipeline, or we can cut a deal with the Germans to, I mean, there's, there's actually, um, you know, some, some, a, a lot of, green energy funds that the Germans committed to out of this deal to go to go back and try and kind of wean Ukraine and, and some of these other countries off the dependence on um, fossil fuels that that currently is a big part of their economy. And so that was essentially the carrot that they they tried to get out of this. Now, inter interestingly, uh, the State Department suggested, I think they said in the briefing, there was no deal. Because and they had to be really careful because the problem that they have is they do have a mandatory sanctions re regime imposed by Congress, so they can't really say that they've agreed not to enforce the sanctions. They're right. granting waivers. That was that, that was asked, I think that was asked. Yeah, that was yeah. asked explicitly by a reporter or two. Like, so you're telling me the sanctions are going away? And they're like, No, right. we're not. No, saying no, that. no. And in fact, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. not saying that we're can't. lifting them. We can't. But right, we are right. what we're saying right. is we're granting the waiver because we view it as the be, in the best interests of foreign policy, namely that this yeah. this and national security, namely this pipeline is going to be built, and it, right. it, it, like whether we sanction them or not, because the Trump administration didn't do anything. I mean that's their view, and you know I think objectively, two two impositions of sanctions against a pipeline where it's pretty easy to tell who's you know, doing the work on the pipeline, it's a pretty fair case that if the Trump administration wanted to stop this, they, they should have been doing a little bit more than two sanctions in the last couple of weeks of the administration. But but it's it's basically a, you know, I, I thought it was interesting how cautious they were about what they're doing with the sanctions because there is this, you know, there are a couple of mandatory provisions under both CATSA and PISA where they really are not able to just walk away and say, do whatever you want um, with respect to Nord Stream and you won't get sanctioned because if they were to do that, I mean, I'm not sure what Congress's remedy would be in those circumstances. Well, but... well Ted Cruz is going to throw a fit no matter what, as has right. been. Uh, right. As he's going to put a hold on every. He's going to put a hold right. on every nominee I, from now until you know 2030. But you right. Know. But I also, so, I, I also think you know, other than that, I mean, it's you know, this is not particularly. Right. I don't think a court is going to order. 
the administration to change foreign policy on this. So I'm not sure how enforceable those provisions right. are against the administration, well, and, but I think they're just we trying know, to be careful. Right. And as we know, even the mandatory provisions, there's a ton of discretion there. And so right. I think this the signal is clear as to which way that discretion is going to be exercised in all likelihood going forward. But you're 100% correct. I think the one other takeaway I would add to this, which we've talked about before, sort of two related points, which is sanctions are not the answer to everything. And because, as you said, they were playing the hand we're dealt. If we came in and tried a maximum pressure approach or something like that, it would just be, it would just be, you know, banging our heads against the wall for to what end? And then two, the uh, the value that this administration certainly places on restoring good ties with close allies like like Germany, and the idea that we're gonna we're gonna sort of you know, we're going to stand with our friends in Germany here and we're not going to uh, completely uh, undercut them or continue to antagonize them. Uh, we're going to we're going to come to some accommodation that's in our interest, that's in their interest. And it's in the interest of our other of Ukraine and Poland and these other countries that are affected by this as well. I think that's to me, that's the message. Right. I mean, it's not I think the, the fundamental disagreement between the Trump and the Biden administrations on sanctions is that. Trump viewed sanctions, I, you know, I'm speaking of the administration, not necessarily the, the former president, but, but that administration viewed sanctions as a way to send a message about what we like and what we don't like. And they really gave no, no or appeared to give no thought as to whether or not, as a practical matter, that those sanctions would make things better or worse, or there was any strategic purpose going on. It was basically, it was basically a if 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 we don't like you as a matter of foreign policy, whether you be the international criminal court, or whether you be, you know, the crackdown in Hong Kong or the crackdown in Xinjiang or what have you, sanctions was their tool. And some of those policies actually stand, in my view, a chance of working and others were insane. And that, but that was not their purpose. They really didn't seem to give any thought whatsoever to, to the, the, the strategically as to the reason for sanctions. And by contrast, I mean, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be inclined to impose sanctions for the purpose of making a statement. And again, I, I was actually, you know, I, I, that was my initial impression of what they did in Cuba. And then when I looked more closely at it, it's not what's going on. I think there is a strategic purpose there. And I think that there, you know, there certainly is a strategic purpose here. And, and uh, you know, it, it comes down to whether you believe that these sanctions really, if you if you view sanctions as a strategic matter, I think, you know, reasonable people could disagree about whether or not if the U.S. amped up sanctions, even at this late date, maybe they could do something to throw the pipeline off. And maybe that's Ted Cruz's point, or, you know, I, maybe he has a different one. But I think to the extent you want to make the point that it's not too late, maybe you can make that case. It looks to me like it's too late. I, I tend to agree with the administration. But the bigger point here is that they, they're they're basically saying, we don't think sanctions are going to work. And so all they're going to do is make our allies mad. And instead of doing that, imposing sanctions for no purpose, we're actually going to get some benefit for the parties that we're actually trying to protect with these sanctions through the carrot from Germany. And, um, you know, and we're going to, and we're going to basically walk away at that point. And that makes sense to me, right. but it, it, it is not, it is, it is, it is completely different with the Trump administration, with what the Trump administration did in, in the sense that we are essentially standing down on sanctions against a, you know, government, the Russian government, with which we have fundamental disagreements and, and don't want to send a signal of approval. Right. So anyway, an interesting, yeah, an interesting illustration, I think, of the of the differing approaches there. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see what else may bubble up in the Nord Stream 2 realm, but it, it, it could very well be that we're not going to be circling back to this one too, too often in the future, given that we have talked about it quite a lot over the last year plus. So uh, with that, let's let's move to a topic we will most certainly be coming back to after this week, which is JCPOA 2.0. So Tim, let's tell tell the tell the world, tell our viewers what's happening with round seven, and what is your prediction for what's going to happen next? So round seven is not happening at this point. Uh, there is somewhat of a standoff with respect to round seven. Um, the, U the U.S. government says that there are things happening, even though the the 
um, participants to the talks are not back in Vienna, that they're still being able to accomplish various things, that 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 Rob O'Malley is is still working from Washington to to try and uphold the U.S. side. Um, they did say something that we've actually said on the podcast, I think almost directly in the State Department briefing that I saw, which was that the clock is ticking and this deal gets less valuable with every click tick of the clock for the U.S. And at some point, um, it will become you know the, the the balance will change the other way so time is not on on their side i also read some reports that the us has been signaling that if the deal falls apart that uh they may start to look at all of these uh chinese oil purchases from iran from a secondary sanctions perspective because i mean it's now not even a secret i mean i was going to say it's an open secret but it's just you know publicly known now that china is buying a lot of oil from iran uh, even though the secondary sanctions are still in place and so significant transactions within the petroleum sector in iran are sanctionable and chinese entities are engaging in significant transactions with the petroleum sector in iran openly on the you know pages of the wall street journal and the, the new york times and so so the U.S. has signaled that it's going to actually start paying attention to that again if the deal falls apart. Although, as an enforcement matter, when you're trying to, to essentially lift the negotiate to lift those sanctions, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to start cracking down on those sanctions. So they haven't done it yet, but they've started to, to threaten to do it. On the Iranian side, what I've seen is also something that we predicted on this, but it's the first time I've seen it publicly, and that is that uh, Iran. One thing, one big sticking point is that Iran wants an enforceable mechanism. To, so that the U.S. can't just back out again in 2024 if a different president gets elected. And the U.S. position is, you know, that you can't tie the hands of the next administration like that. I think the, the Iran proposal that I saw was that the U.N., you, you'd essentially have to back out through the U.N. And, and the U.S., you know, I think rightly says that that would give Russia a veto over a back out. But I don't know why you couldn't have a commission of, you know, uh, France, Germany, and England decide whether or not uh, anybody could back out. I mean, the U.S. really shouldn't be able to object to that and say that they would be unreasonable in those circumstances. And so I haven't seen that proposed, but if if the only objection from the U.S. side is that Russia would have a veto, I mean, you just propose a commission that Russia's not part of, and those parties actually happen to be in the room. So they certainly, I mean, and by that I mean the U.K., uh, France and Germany are in the room, so they they could could do that. And I, I don't think Iran's demand is is altogether unreasonable there. I mean, like they they had a deal and they didn't do anything wrong by all accounts. And the U.S. backed out of the deal for no reason. And hard to go back to a deal in which the other side can just walk away whenever they want. Yeah, I mean, I just can't see the U.S. ever agreeing to that. Ever agreeing to any any guarantee of no withdrawal i just don't i don't see how that's or, without cause or, I mean, if, or if it is a, or if it is a, or if it is a guarantee it's going to be a guarantee that they could easily break essentially <laughs> i mean and, and i think and i think it's been you know the point's been raised like this is probably that's something like that where the un would have a voice uh, on this or a role on this or anybody else would have a role on this that to you know determine a, a hugely consequential piece of U.S. foreign policy would probably be unconstitutional, or potentially be unconstitutional. It, it certainly and, would be unenforceable, but the but the but right. the optics would at least be good, right? I mean, at least at least there, you know, what, what what President Trump did. I mean, there was nothing in the deal that that violated because the deal just never imagined that never that con never contemplated it, right? Of course, of course. So, right, that's a whole. I, I, you know, to some degree, I just don't even know how much of that is. I mean, by some accounts, it sounds like that's the primary sticking point is this idea of um, of a no withdrawal guarantee by the U.S. But at the same time, as Tim said, uh, you know, Iran is now, you know, enriching at a rate that is really causing alarm. Inspectors are not able to get in. The window is closing. You know, the Raisi team is coming on board very soon once he's um, officially in office in just the next couple of weeks. And it seems like nothing's going to really happen until that occurs in all likelihood. It looks like we're kind of in a lame duck period and, and may not happen. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the point Tim raised before about, uh, you know, at the end of the, it all comes back to China. And I think the idea that if the U.S. were willing to just unload on China, I, I have a suspicion that there are many, many, many sanctions targets that could be designated tomorrow 
in terms of shipping networks and other companies that are involved in what are reported to be a million barrels a day of petroleum it's that huge. are being purchased it's, by it's the it's Chinese. A huge it's a huge petroleum. number. And the U.S., I mean, this is always the calculus is that China just doesn't care. China doesn't care. And they are willing to thumb their noses at the U.S. and say, we're going to do what we want to do because we know we have the backing of our government to completely disregard U.S. sanctions and go ahead and try to go ahead and try to tag us if you want to. But we don't think you're going to have the stomach to do it. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. And I saw in some reports that the administration may be considering whether to do that to force Iran to the table to try to to try to force a deal as opposed to wait and see if a deal breaks down. So that sequencing and the timing, you know, query whether that might be the straw that, you know, sort of breaks this thing apart if that were to happen because they would be so up in arms uh, that that would just everybody would retreat to their respective countries and nobody would be willing to talk again. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see. I think in the course of the next month, Probably by the time we record the next one of these, or certainly by the time we get to early September and we do uh, a check-in on what's happening here, I would think we're going to have a little more clarity. We've been thinking for a while now. We were close, but uh, you know, I think that the China issue is a big one. And I mean, yeah. we see some version of this in many different contexts. I mean, we've seen this with Venezuela. We've seen this with other, you know, they're willing to large Chinese entities are willing to just completely disregard U.S. sanctions and the secondary sanctions risk in part because they know that they have the backing of their government, which they view to be co-equal with the U.S. and they're, they just don't care and they don't, they're not as reliant on the U.S. financial system and they're willing to run the risk to make huge profit. So that's where, that's where this thing stands and that's what this, that could make or break this. I don't know, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, well and, and we've talked a lot about predictions that have come true here. I'm sure that if you go back in the public record, you could find a lot of predictions, at least that I've made, that haven't come true. But I mean, on this one, I was I, I said on the record a bunch of times right at the time that the U.S. pulled out that, that President Trump was essentially handing over the Iran trade um, to China potentially for a generation and potentially for longer. I mean, part of the, the beauty of the JCPOA was that it allowed – Iran to be Western facing, um, which is by all accounts what Iran historically has wanted to do in terms of trade, um, but that China has always been there as a as an alternative. And when we pulled out of the JCPOA, it meant that Europe, which is really concerned about U.S. sanctions, really was going to change its behavior quite a bit. There was there were big questions about whether the Chinese would. Now, to my surprise. Maybe to your surprise too. I mean, we weren't podcasting at this point, Brian, but but the Chinese seemed to go along with the secondary sanctions at the beginning. For a very short amount of time, they stopped buying Iranian oil, but it didn't last very long. And now they've become the biggest customer of Iran in the world. And you know, if the U.S. were to try what has been reported, where they essentially try to force Iran back to the table by sanctioning China, I mean, a China is a party to these negotiations too. So it's so so the how that would affect the negotiations where the U.S. is essentially imposing sanctions on one of the parties that is essentially at this table um, in order to force the other party into a deal. Um, I, I think it's be careful what you wish for if you try to go down that road because um, I just think all hell would break loose and I can't imagine that that would make, give them a better chance of getting Iran to agree to yeah. a deal. Yeah, well, I think, look, I think that's the main reason why it hasn't happened yet is they under, the administration understands that to your point, all hell would break loose and that the, you know, the, the secondary and tertiary consequences of that would probably be not to the U.S.'s benefit in an, in the net, right? So trying to figure out a way to thread this needle where at least the threat of that may be something you want everybody to know about, but you don't necessarily want to do it and, and how to, you know, get everybody to a reasonable place where, uh, you know, it doesn't look like the U.S. is getting their lunch money stolen from them by getting back into this deal because they're giving up everything or too much to, uh, to you know, do a U-turn on on the policy decision that President Trump made in 2018. It's it's it, this is this is proving to be very complicated as we yeah. thought it would be at the outset. Even even though there was a lot of good feeling and sentiment early on, it's definitely going to be a deal. There's definitely going to be a deal. Yeah, lo and behold, here we are several months into this and no deal. And now it looks like we're farther away than we've ever been, perhaps. Yeah. So we'll we'll have we'll just have to see.
Well, I mean, the one the one thing. So, so first of all, to talk about uh, a, a prediction or at least uh, an observation that that I made a couple of weeks ago that has turned out to be wrong. I mean, I, I was I was of the belief that um, that Raisut would not want to negotiate his own deal here. That he would want to let the Rwandan government do this so that he would not be stuck with it if the deal turned out if they got back into a deal and turned out it turned out to not be any good. Now that didn't happen. Um, or at least it, it looks like the Rwandan government is just going to step aside. That Raisi is going to either enter a deal or not enter a deal. It's going to be his his administration that does it. I don't know why that is. I suspect that um, once Rwandi realized that the that he was going to he was going to get all the blame for a bad deal and none of the credit for a good one, that that probably didn't seem like too appetizing a circumstance in which to go finish up the negotiations. But but it, it's also possible that Rice had just decided that that or the supreme leader decided that uh, that this was something that they didn't want to leave to the outgoing administration in Iran and that they were going to just kind of deal with it as the new one came in. But it sure looks like what's that, that Raisi is calling all the shots now in terms of what's going to happen going forward and that the Rouhani government yeah. is basically um, already out of power. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we'll, we'll be back to this before too long. I'm sure on the next episode, because uh, it is, probably the the you know the the number one big ticket item that's that's floating around out there and there's so much uncertainty around the outcome now uh i just was talking to someone in the government a former colleague who was like yeah we'll see what's happening we'll you know we're kind of all just waiting to see what's going to happen with iran uh, because it's going to have huge consequences and uh you know i think that's what we're doing too but in any event we'll put that we'll put that down for the moment uh, that brings us to the end. Well, it has huge consequences our... for our practice as well. I mean, the thing is, right. That right, right now, right now, there's no business being done because everybody's waiting for a deal to, before right. the business begins. I mean, except in China, but right. but and they're not they're not asking for compliance advice before they are, um, you know, right. taking those oil shipments because I think they know what the answer would be. And on the other hand, there's really not a, a lot of enforcement going on except in kind of some right. of the most egregious cases. So right. uh, you know, like the the attempt to um, kidnap the Iranian journalists from the US. Right. I mean, obviously which is another which is another sort of, you know, uh, it's a little bit of gasoline on the fire here, which is like, are we really doing are we really going to sit down and do a deal with a country that's going to attempt to do something on our home soil like that, right. which is ne never optically again, that's just more um, just makes things messier and, and just more complicated to justify doing something. So in any event, we will we'll we'll circle back to this probably next time, if not, uh, you know, a month from now or so. Once perhaps there's more movement, but uh, just needed to do our our, our check in on JCPO. Stay 2. tuned. Stay tuned, as always. So with that, that's the end of our main portion of the show, and then I will pause for the lightning round sound effect. Only one topic on the lightning round docket for today, which is enforcement. Uh, so last time we talked a lot with Richard and Nate about what CBP is doing uh, inbound in terms of customs and import enforcement, uh, especially as it relates to uh, human rights and these withhold release orders that are just, uh, you know, having a huge impact uh, on a number of importers uh, in the U.S., and so we thought it would be useful because we are basically six months in now to the Biden administration to just do a quick very quick couple thoughts off the top of our heads anecdotally based on what we're seeing both from our own practices and what we're reading uh, on whether or not there's really we've noticed any sort of change in approach with respect to enforcement on the export and sanction side of things. And, and this was also prompted in part because there were three OFAC uh, settlements last week. There was um, a sentencing in a, a DOJ uh, export controls matter. There was a, a plea in a um, in, a, in a criminal sanctions proceeding uh, last week. So there was a, a fair amount of, um, of action last week. I've also heard through the grapevine that DDTC may be coming out soon with another consent agreement. Uh, we had Honeywell, obviously, earlier this year. This would be the second one this year if there is another one that is going to come out uh, at some point in, in the next couple of weeks. So I think that begs the question, 
do we think there's anything different right now uh, as opposed to the way the Trump administration was was doing its business uh, on the enforcement side of things? And so let me let me kick it to Tim to offer his his thoughts there and then and then I'll weigh in quickly with mine. So I, on Iran, I, I really think there's been very little change. I think that the the probably correct view of enforcement was that on the secondary sanctions, as long as the JCPOA is being negotiated, it's unlikely that there's going to be a lot of enforcement of the secondary sanctions if they're you know just about to get lifted. And kind of that's what we've seen. And now there's a little bit of question as to whether or not the U.S. will alter that a little bit. But that's been so I think the Biden administration has been different in, on the secondary sanctions in Iran. On the primary sanctions in Iran, they've been, I think, exactly the same, the same kind of career government officials who've been enforcing the primary sanctions against Iran, the U.S. nexus sanctions there, particularly on the criminal side and at OFAC. There really doesn't seem to have been a lot of change. I mean, I think that's still an enforcement priority from the sanctions perspective. Same with North Korea, no real change in enforcement that I've seen. I think, you know, the North Korean sanctions is is an enforcement priority and that gets relatively bigger, bigger. I, I think to me, probably the biggest change that I've seen has been um, with respect to the Commerce Department. I, I, I thought that the Commerce Department enforcement, particularly when it came to China, was um, extremely politicized in the Trump administration. And, and, and I think you could see that because essentially every time they would put somebody on the entity list, Wilmer Ross would give a Wilbur Ross would give a press release that credited the president for doing, you know, for flying and doing somersaults and winning the Olympic gymnastics championship or whatever. And so so I think that 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 there really has been a lot less, um, you know, politicization in BIS in terms of enforcement, particularly when it comes to China. If I had to pick one issue, I think that would be it. And I think it's it's much more of a multi-agency approach when it comes to China and a lot more targeted than it was in the in the Trump administration. Yeah, I'll say the, the only thing I'll really say is this, as we as we have talked about at length, the prior administration was very focused on as Tim said earlier in this episode, making it known that we were unhappy with and uh, certain actors or countries. Uh, and so as a result, we were going to, we were going to put them on the SDN list. We were going to put them on the energy list and we were going to do that as much as possible. And obviously Iran and China primarily were the two areas where that was happening under the Trump administration. And in terms of the resources, the time, the energy, the effort, the staff support that is needed, whether it's at OFAC or at BIS or within the ERC when it comes to entity listings, to do that, to vet those cases, uh, you know, again, we've we've had some evidence that perhaps they weren't always being vetted as as sort of thoroughly as they could have or have been historically, but. Nevertheless, there was there is obviously a, a cost and a time associated with that, that there was so much effort and so much time being spent on that, that perhaps it was a fair assumption that um, some time spent on just traditional kind of churn, churning through investigations, reviewing the results of, you know, administrative subpoenas and working with parties to resolve matters uh, was perhaps affected, was slowed somewhat. Um, and now that doesn't really apply to DOJ because I think DOJ kind of ch churns, especially in this space, kind of churns along uh, at, at, at a normal pace. And that's probably one of the least politicized little pockets in the national security realm at DOJ, I would say. And so to some degree, there's the natural churn and there's always the time, the time lapse and the time needed to do these cases, to investigate these cases, as we always see, even with the cases that were resolved last week, this is old conduct. This is almost always very old conduct that we see. It's five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, there's tolling agreements. It takes a long time you know, whether it's voluntary disclosures on the administrative side or it's, um, or even on the criminal side, or it's, um, you know, just the investigations in the normal course are just, these are not quick investigations. These are not, okay, six months from the time of the conduct till resolution. That's just not what happens. It takes a while. And so I, I do think, and we've said this before, and I've seen this certainly firsthand when I was in the government, and now I see it with the investigations that I'm in charge of that I'm interacting with the government on on behalf of our clients 
there's just some there's some randomness there in terms of how fast things move, what gets put to the top of the pile, what what ends up getting prioritized, whether there is going to be the the people power behind something to just push things through. So I don't know that there's enough data yet to say that there's really any change. In fact, I would probably say there's probably not much change, um, other than to say that. My sense is that there is less time being spent on all of the things that I mentioned earlier. And, and to Tim's point, that things are less politicized now, that there is a bit more of a even keeled approach to these things. So it's just everybody kind of working through them in the, in the natural course, going through the natural paces of an investigation, which are going to take a year, two years, three years, sometimes more. Uh, in any event. And so seeing how things break in terms of when charges are brought, when settlements are reached, when pleas happen, again, it's somewhat arbitrary. So looking at the yearly stats for OFAC settlements is a, is sort of an arbitrary exercise sometimes because if there's one big bank settlement in a given year, then that's going to juice the numbers. And if there are no big bank settlements in a given year, then guess what? They're going to look like it fell off big time. And that's just that's just a kind of randomness of the calendar and the way things work. So my my two cents right now, maybe minor minor changes, maybe a bit more business as usual in terms of working through investigations and working through enforcement matters across the board at the agencies. Um, but I haven't seen anything thus far to really tell me or suggest that there is, you know, big, big changes that have taken hold in the in the six months that the Biden administration has been in. Yeah, I just think it's back to normal. I, I, I think basically, you know, one, and, and I think it was most acute at BIS, but, uh, you know, I was hearing from OFAC during the last administration or from people who were at OFAC during the last administration that, you know, decisions were being made at the upper levels of the Treasury and at the White House on OFAC matters that is pretty unusual. I mean, OFAC is a, you know, it's not a political appointment right. to be the director of OFAC. Now, when enforcement actions come out, there's a press release that comes from the director of OFAC. During the Trump administration, they almost always came from Mnuchin, um, and sometimes even a level above that. And and you know, I right. think that the the power has kind of migrated back down to the people who are normally doing enforcement. And I think to your point, Brian, I think it's and I think it's a great one. What when when the politicals get involved like they did and 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 you know there's not necessarily anything wrong with the politicals get involved. I mean they got elected by the people or at least you know the president did, and so the the idea that the president gets to make decisions about his or her administration, you know that's that's democracy. So I, it's not a problem, but it does divert resources in a way that that basically. That, that that at least in normal times they're they're not diverted in that way, and so it slows a lot of other things that are not the president's priority down, uh, you know, un, in a way that's not normal. And I think now that the politicals seem to be largely out of the OFAC and BIS enforcement realm, they're making decisions based on what much more predictable, you know, I say normal, but kind of at least pre 2016 considerations. Um, and so you can kind of predict how quickly they'll go and predict kind of what the result will be in a much easier way. Yeah, I think to a person, the the kind of watchword or the thing that we are hearing, and I've heard this both in having actual kind of official communications on certain matters and investigations and also just talking to friends and former colleagues kind of across the government is, is the normalization, like Tim said, that is a good word for it, is that there has been a bit of a uh, attacking back to uh, you know, the career level people sort of running things at, at in an appropriate way, not, right. not in a, not in a deep state is out to subvert democracy sort of way, but in a, this is why we have the structure we have so that you have the people at kind of the worker bee level that are doing these things and making judgment calls and getting them approved up the chain as necessary, but it is not, it is not so top down driven. And I think the top down act, you know, actions that were taken kind of across the board over the last administration were drastically affecting kind of the pace of things and just sort of continuity and uh, and why we did see some kind of sharp departures in certain types of activities in the enforcement space in, in this realm in particular. And there were so many consequential policy decisions that were rolled out in the course of, you know, the 2017 to early 2021 timeframe uh, that did kind of upend things in a number of ways that I think it was almost um, inescapable that there was going to be some 
you know, flow down that, that the sort of normal, the normal churn of enforcement matters perhaps was going to be, if not disrupted, at least impacted to some degree, uh, timing wise and, uh, and, and otherwise. So, so anyway, I think, I think that's, that's where we are on this at this point. I, I, you know, I think no big, no big news there, but just sort of thought it would be a useful, just kind of a useful check-in because as opposed to what we heard from Richard and Nate the last time where there has been a noticeable spike in CBP enforcement for a very clear reason on the, on the, you know, um, on the WRO front, uh, with respect to the, uh, human rights considerations coming out of Xinjiang and other places, we haven't really seen anything comparable to that. I think in, in our, in our space, uh, as of yet. The one final word I will say on that, that is, I think noticeably different is Venezuela. I, like Venezuela was t- front and center for the Trump administration in enforcement. And it's it, at least at, you know, small sample size. So it's only been six months, but it does not appear to be front and center from an enforcement perspective. And in fact, at least from reading the signals, the administration appears really keen to kind of cut a quiet deal that allows for an election in Venezuela. Um, but, but, but not to do it by essentially, you know, imposing sanctions every couple of days against somebody, you know, in, in Venezuela. The non the non maximum pressure approach to free and fair elections. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's right. But but you know, we'll uh, time will tell with that. So uh, in any event, let's let's leave enforcement behind for the time being. Uh, I think that's our show for today. Uh, we will I think we will likely be back in two weeks, if not three weeks for one episode in August. And then I think we probably won't hear from us again until September uh, as um, Tim and I will both be uh, in, in parts unknown trying to uh, with, with, with good internet, hopefully, but without, um, without uh, our recording, our recording equipment in front of us. So um, that's, that's, I think likely for us, but uh, in the meantime, Hope that everybody out there is, uh, we are recording this July 26th, so hope everybody is getting a little bit of a break. Hope everybody's being safe, hope everybody's watching the numbers out there. Um, there's no shame in wearing a mask uh, and uh, being being smart about what you're, what you're doing with uh, your socializing these days. So uh, to everybody, hopefully stay, stay well, stay safe, and stay sanctions-free. Stay sanctions-free, stay COVID-free, get your shots. Mm-hmm.